Welcome to the Safe and Sound Protocol podcast, a polyvagal theory informed therapy. I'm your host, Joanne McIntyre. Here we talk everything polyvagal and SSP related. Dr. Porges has provided us with a revolutionary framework for understanding the connection between our autonomic nervous system and behavior. The SSP acoustic intervention is an exciting new therapy helping people all around the world. Hello and welcome to today's episode. Today I'm speaking with Rachel Lewis Marlowe, who is a somatically integrative psychotherapist, duly licensed in counseling and therapeutic massage and body work. She is the co-founder of the Embodied Recovery Institute, which provides training to eating disorders professionals in a trauma-informed, relationally orientated and somatically integrated model of eating disorders treatment. She is a certified advanced practitioner in sensory motor psychotherapy and has advanced training and over 25 years experience in diverse somatic therapies, including cranial sacral therapy, energetic osteopathy, oncology massage, and aromatherapy. Rachel began providing somatically integrative psychotherapy to eating disorders patients in the residential PHP and IOP levels of care. Currently in private practice at Chapel Hill, North Carolina, Rachel works with people healing from trauma, eating disorders, and disassociative disorders. She has extensive experience as a teacher and presenter, focusing on accessing the body's unique capacity to give voice to the subconscious and to lay the foundation for healing and maintaining psychological and physical health. Hello. Hi, Rachel. How are you doing? I'm doing well. I'm doing well. Um, I, I want to, I'm sorry about the time mix was up. It, was, it might have been, I mean, it's probably me who messed up. Sometimes I don't always get it right. So is it five o'clock where you are now or? No, now it's about, it's a little after 5.30. It's 5.30. So, so it was just an hour off. It was no big deal. Yeah, my, my apologies. My apologies. Well, I'm glad we worked it out. I'm glad um, I was just doing some reading and then I just popped to my emails and I and I saw that you had popped on. I was like, oh, my gosh, did I mess up? So, yeah. No, I think, I think it's just, you know, time zones and daylight savings and all of that kind of stuff. Yes, so. things shift and change. Yes, awesome. Well, I'm glad I'm glad that I'm glad that you still have time for us to meet. So perfect. Absolutely, absolutely. Thank you for making time. Yeah, where are you located? I am in um Chapel Hill, North Carolina. Yes, beautiful. Yeah. And I just want to check in to see if this location is okay. I if there's, I hope there's not too much ambient sound from mm-hmm. no, you can't the, the roosters. Yeah, no, very perfect. Actually, um, we um, so I'm located on on a coastal area in Australia, um, and I probably need to do what you're doing one day and sit out on my deck because we've got views down to kind of distally to the ocean. But then we also have a, yeah. have, a have a farm, and I was almost going to be at the farm this morning. Um, but I was like, oh, would there be too much sort of back, 
background noise with bellbirds and kookaburras. <laughs> but I probably need to do that one day just because it will be quite novel, I think, you know. <laughs> Absolutely. As, as long as you're not experiencing floods or fires, which I, I <laughs> We've just been a little bit of the go in Australia right now, yes. <laughs> yeah, you really have. You really have. I have, I have um, some folks that I consult with in australia and it's just every i'm just like oh my gosh are you guys okay <laughs> yes yeah talk about like environmental trauma between um yeah all the bushfires that just ravish the yeah. country and then um oh, excuse me in my eye and then yes um we're actually located up in the region where we had all the floodings um luckily we we have probably oh, excuse me i'm sorry about something in my eye it's quite all right um we, luckily, we live in elevated land. Oh, happens to happen when we're, oh, I might have to get it. Do you need to go? I might just need a bit of, just give me one moment yeah, to put a yeah, in my Yeah, eye. yeah, I can see it's irritated. Oh, sorry. Yeah, <laughs> no, no problem, no problem. Sorry about that. I wear contact lenses, and so when you get something little in your eye, it just seems to like escalate. <laughs> I, I, I've been there. I've been there. It's not fun. I, I, I actually have a very vivid, uh, actually, memory as a child of having a little piece of dust in my in my oh. eye, and just it was horrible. And when the doctor showed me what it was, but you know, it was like that's all. So, I remember. I remember. Yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah. Uh, so I just, before we get started, I want to say I've been to North Carolina and it is absolutely just a beautiful part of the world. It's um, Oh, where, where did you get to go? Um, so we've been through Chapel Hill. So I actually used to live, we lived in Florida for 23 uh -huh. years. Oh, yeah, really? So, yeah, so, um, and I used to work for um, Integrated Listening Systems before Unite took them out. I was one of the instructors for the, the Focus System. Um, oh really yeah yeah so we got to sort of travel across the country teaching um we, we did live trainings back then for for training so so yeah so that's kind of my connection to to the company and then we moved back to Australia eight years ago and um and then we've we um sort of set up like a mini ILS here in Australia and do do trainings and then obviously when oh, nice you know, they partnered with with Stephen you know we've do um, trainings about polyvabel and safe and sound protocol here. So that's kind of my sort of connection to. Um, and then um, I love sharing information. So I thought, why not start this podcast and share amazing information? And um, I know what we're going to talk about today is going to be just so 
important information for practitioners and for listeners to to know about. So, so yeah, thank you for your time for for um, talking about that because um, um, eating disorders isn't a, uh, an area that I know a lot about. So I'm very very curious myself to to unpack all the knowledge that you're that you have to share. So. Um, I thought maybe before we get started is tell us a little bit about about your journey to um, because I know you have training in quite diverse areas and um, yeah yeah, so talk a little bit about your training your journey to um, to develop the Embodied Recovery Institute and then we'll talk about what that institute is. Sure sure so you know, my little elevator speech about about my journey usually starts with um, this lifelong kind of blending of 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 body and mind. Ever since I was I was very young, I um, I was always moving and dancing, and that was like one passion. And then I remember telling my mother, I, I mean, I could have been I don't know seven or eight, and say I, I want to be a psychiatrist. You know, and I. I didn't realize at that point that meant I had to go to medical school and that took that off the table, but it's always been this, I think these two parts of who I am um, have, have, I've just been kind of going back and forth and immersing myself. So when I um, went to college, I started um, with a, a major in psychology and then I did two years of that. And, and then I transferred schools and I studied dance for two years and um and it was in that that I think it was around that time that I had my first um massage my first professional received a first my first professional massage and had this incredible emotional experience and I thought whoa this is really powerful I mean I've always known that the body expressed emotion but I didn't I didn't understand how I guess how completely woven together they were until I had this these experiences, um, and so uh, after my undergraduate, I really was pretty immersed in a nonverbal world. I was teaching dance. I then went and got my certification in, in massage and therapeutic body work, and I just sort of stayed in that world where my primary languages were were kinetic and tactile. Um, and then I got to this place where I was realizing that the, the changes I was able to help facilitate for people um, working with the hands-on work and the movement work were, were, would get them just so far and that there was another level I needed to go. I either needed to go more into the medical kind of mode, or I needed to really start to weave in more of the psychological realm and cognition and, and emotion. Um, and so that's when I went and I got my, my degree, my, my uh, graduate degree in counseling. Um, and that was quite a shift because I was going from sort of a very right-brained existence <laughs> to this very left-brain, top-down treatment of the human experience. And, and that, that, that took me a little while to get used to. And I, and I kept feeling like, I, okay, something is missing here. It's because it wasn't being woven together for me. 
Um, and then, then I found sensory motor psychotherapy. And um, what I, the gift for me of that work was that it gave me the language. It, it helped me allow sort of the left brain language-centered cognitive part of my being to be in service to the right brain and for the right brain to be able to be in service as opposed to be competing. And it gave me this bridge between these two worlds. Um, and it focused on, on trauma um, and, and attachment and how attachment injuries impact our development. And then where is the intersection between our responses that are defensive responses and our responses that are attachment upon our attachment responses. Um, and it was through sensory motor psychotherapy that I got involved with eating disorders. I was approached by an eating disorder treatment residential and um, partial hospitalization program um, because they were interested in working more with trauma. And so I, I started there while I was still doing my sensory motor training. And as I was immersed in the way in which people were treating trauma, um, eating disorders, and these different maps and, and sort of ways of conceptualizing human experience, I started to weave that together and say, I think there's, there's some important pieces that are being missed in how we're working with eating disorders. It's not to say that what we're doing isn't good, it's just not complete. Um, and I had the good fortune of um, intersecting with Paula Scatoloni at the same treatment center. Um, she was doing a movement class and I was working as a primary therapist and I had developed what I called the Embodying Recovery Group, which was starting to work with this somatic scaffold for attachment, which I think Porges would, would describe as that ability to identify and connect with safety as well as what it is to distance, to separate from threat and danger, which would be our defense system. So I was kind of building that. Paula was there and she'd been studying somatic experiencing and sort of thinking about, well, how do we apply somatic experiencing to eating disorder treatment? And so we got together and we kind of looked at the Venn diagram of those two models and then you know, augmented it more with the attachment piece. And that's sort of how the embodied recovery for eating disorders training program started. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Did that answer your question? Yes. Yes. Very. Yes. Lovely. That was, that was, that was a very long elevator ride. So. No, no. <laughs> but it shows you just the merging and the thinking behind how we sort of mm -hmm. do really need to blend that sort of body with 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 mind Absolutely. um yeah and i think you know yeah. polyvagal theory really helps sort of encompass that so so mm -hmm. so you've been working in the world of eating disorders for quite some time probably since 2012 i think was when okay. i began okay yeah. so and so so let's maybe just unravel what is the current understanding of of eating disorders Right, right. Well, I think it's evolving. Mm -hmm. So let me say that. Um, when I started, 
it was um, eating disorders were conceptualized as what they call a biopsychosocial disorder, meaning that there were these components of our biology that created a predisposition for the development of eating disorders. And that then individual psycho psychological tendencies, cognitions, or the way in which we deal with emotion blended with our social environment are kind of what, set, what supports it and sets it off, right? Um, although, you know, sometimes they, they would link it to the onset of adolescence, but it was very much, it was like, it had to be this perfect storm. Um, and so there was, uh, there was this sense that there was some, there was some kind of predisposition for it, mm -hmm. but they really were focusing on maybe there's a genetic predisposition um, and the way in which you work with the body is primarily through feeding it, making sure that it's, it's nourished, it's got enough nutrients in it um, and through psychopharmacology. Mm -hmm. um, they were starting to bring in yoga. Um, I think that's, that's increased a lot more is this idea that we can build the capacity to regulate in the moment mm -hmm. through these mindful practices. Um, but there wasn't really an understanding that um, the eating disorder behaviors may be driven primarily from our somatic scaffold that is impacting our individual psychology and our ability to, to engage socially, you know, with, with what is available, as well as how resilient are we to, to injury and insult to those systems. Which so, is interesting. Yeah, I was just doing a yeah, just looking a little bit at you know, as to prepare for our meeting, and and I found it quite interesting that there is quite a strong hereditary connection for mm -hmm. people with with eating disorders. Um, so I thought that was interesting. But then, um, and you're talking about that systematic awareness is that you know the research is is speaking to that they have this sort of in, you know interoceptive hypersensitivity. Um, which is kind of like um, in, impacting the ability to focus or kind of overwhelming or then misreading those cues. So, you know, when I read that, I'm like, I could see how having a somatic approach um, would, would definitely sort of help if they're having those sort of difficulties. Absolutely, absolutely. And I think that what, um, what was missing is a real thorough understanding of what, what, what does it mean? What is this bio part, right? That's one reason why the way we talk about it in from the embodied recovery lens is that we kind of want to expand that and talk about it, not just sort of in biology or, or genetics, but just the whole way as the human being, we engage somatically, right? And looking at the epigenetics as well as the genetics, looking at um, what is happening early, early on that is building these capacities to interact. So we're looking at what's happening in the birth, in, from conception through birth, through early life, how are the, the primitive reflexes 
integrated or established because they're what sets up the volitional movement. And it's kind of like getting all of that wiring on board, those reflexes that allow us to move away from stimulus or towards it, that allow us to expand or condense. And to do that in an organized way. So we have a full range of relational options because that's what movement is. Movement is the language of relationship, Mm -hmm. right? Um, It's the way the body experiences and communicates relationally. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I'm curious with, with your lens of how you kind of look at the body and um, with your background, what did, and obviously at the time having a little bit where people's understanding was more of a behavioral approach that, you know, people's, Mm -hmm. the people with eating disorder had, you know, that they were trying to diet or, Um, Their willpower was really high. I mean, obviously, there's a lot of behavioral theories around around eating disorders, but with this different kind of lens of looking at this body somatic, what kind of patterns did you did you notice? Any kind of patterns and presentations of the of you know the people the clients you work with? Yeah, yeah, and 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 I think. what we might start with is that traditionally these behaviors were seen as sort of the reflections of, or the results of how people thought about themselves, the cognitive beliefs that they held about themselves or about the world around them. And what we're doing is we're saying, well, actually the behaviors are, are actually not, they, they are, from a bottom-up perspective, the behaviors are expressions of the body's way of speaking. It's not what we're saying about the body, but it's what the body is saying about our sense of a sense of safety. How is the physiology organized around safety? How much ventral vagal engagement is available? You know, where is their window of tolerance? How often can they stay within that window of tolerance with a ventral vagal engagement? Or, you know, is their neurology primarily in a sympathetic mode or in a parasympathetic dorsal state or some combination of those two? Um, and so what we started so that was, that was a, that's a big shift. That's like taking it 180 degrees mm-hmm. because what we're saying is rather than trying to quiet the eating disorder voice or, or just eliminate the eating disorder behaviors, we actually want to listen to the eating disorder voice, listen to the behaviors and start to decode them, right? And that's when you start talking, okay, so what are the patterns that we're seeing? So another Another difference is that um, traditionally eating disorders are sort of categorized by behaviors of restricting, um, binging, and purging, you know, some combination of those three behaviors. And, um, And so there's like, well, if you're restricting, we need to do this. If you're binging, we need to do this. If you're purging, we need to kind of do this, right? Or or that these are ways of coping with emotions 
as opposed to saying, well, actually, maybe these are actually kind of expressions of emotional states. They are, it's not that you're doing this instead of being you know, angry or afraid. These are, this is fear. This is grief. Let's listen to it. And um, I'm gonna try and tie this in. I can kind of get a little tangential, but it does weave together. What I started to do was to take a map that I learned from sensory motor psychotherapy, which is called the action cycle. And it looks at these different phases that we go through when we take action. And eating is a very, very complex action. It requires this first stage, which they call um, clarity. So for, in terms of eating, we have to first identify internally, am I hungry? Am I full? What am I hungry for? Am I thirsty or am I hungry? You know, I have to have a lot of introceptive capacity to know that. Is this feeling I'm feeling inside anxiety or hunger? Is it thirst or hunger? Am I tired? <laughs> you know, what is this that I'm, that's happening? So that's the first phase. And if I don't have clarity on that, I can have any number of behaviors. I can restrict, I can binge, right? I might have very rigid food choices because I can't make decisions based on my internal sensations. So I just stick to a routine, right? As a way of getting nourishment in, I may, you know, not know when to eat. You know, so there's all these kinds of things, behaviors that may show up because I have what is called an insight barrier. Now, the next phase of action is if I have clarity, then I take action, then I know what I want to do. And they call that effectiveness in this model. But what that requires is that I have enough support, both in my own body to move and to move like forward, <laughs> but also in my relational field that what I want is supported. It's okay for me to take action. In terms of eating, that phase would be my ability to um, select food, ask for food, prepare food, plate food. You know, I'm taking action to get it, right? And that can be interrupted by all kinds of things. Diet culture can tell me what I want isn't okay, right? Um, my, my ethnic culture can tell me that certain foods are or are not all right. Um, but more than that, it can be it can be around other ways in which I show autonomy or what I want. Like, is it okay for me to say, you know, I, I want to play the piano when no, you know, no, you've got to go play sports or is it okay for me to have a particular uh, sexual orientation, right? Like these are all ways in which I'm starting to come into the world based on selecting what I want. If those things are interrupted, if I'm not supported in moving towards what I want, 
my body starts to get dysregulated when it comes to taking action based on what I need and want. And that's going to show up in my relationship with food. Now, the other thing that can happen on a much more reflexive or you know, earlier somatic level is if I have difficulty with my primitive reflexes, if I can't cross the midline, right? Or if I have tactile sensitivities, preparing food might be really difficult. If I have sensory integration problems, going to a, going to a grocery store creates so much distress from a bottom-up perspective. And I may or may not have accurate cognition of why I'm feeling so bad. So I start to make up a reason given you know, what I've been told or what's available. Those are often where the eating disorder voices or thoughts come from is that they are the best explanation I have for why going to the grocery store is unpleasant or why I don't want to go out into a restaurant. It's like, oh, I don't like eating in front of people. Well, maybe it's, maybe it could be, I don't, I can't stand the sound of other people chewing because I've got misophonia, Mm -hmm. right? And all of these things get, get um, kind of missed in traditional eating disorder treatment. So, but again, like, so those patterns of, of the inability to prepare food or select food could end up with restriction. I'm just not going to get anything. You know, it's like too much, forget it. Or it can end up with binging because I'm going to go for what is acceptable or what is easy for me to get, even if it's not what I really need or want. And so we say, you know, it, it takes, it takes a lot of pretzels to quench your thirst, Mm -hmm. right? (laughs) Because what you're doing is you're just overriding and you're, you're creating an internal sensation that's louder than the hunger or louder than the thirst or the thing that you really want. So that fullness is loud enough that I'm not hearing the hunger that's not being fed. So, so to just say, well, we're going to treat binging or purging or restricting as one thing, it doesn't work because it's different places in the action cycle. And a big one comes in the next one, which is the taking in the food. You know, sometimes it's like, well, I can plate it. And this often happens with eating disorders. People will like plate the food, but then when they get it on their plate, they can't, they can't they can't take it in, or if they take it in, they can't keep it in. So it's that bringing it in piece. And that can, again, that can have come from ruptures in the, in the social support, right? But it's reflected in the body, or it can also be in the body itself, right? Where it's, this is where I think um, that panel that I was on with Paula, that I think maybe you heard, Dr. Porges asked this question, why don't they call eating disorders ingestion disorders? And um, when it comes to this phase of action, it really is about ingestion. It's can I take it in, right? But all kinds of things can interfere, including sensitivities, tactile sensitivity, difficulty um, you know, with, with, 
with chewing and tasting and smell, all of these things can get very, very um, disruptive to the ability. And then, you know, if, if we are running on a, a trauma physiology, then we don't have the ventral vagal support for digestion. And you're bringing food into a digestive system that's shut down. And that's really uncomfortable, really uncomfortable. So, so you were asking about patterns. There are a lot of patterns, but they're nuanced. And when we take this lens, we start to see, first we have to see where in the action cycle are, are the barriers, where are the behaviors, reflections of the physiology and the action cycle barriers. Once we know that, then we can start to see, okay, what support is missing that allows for the ventral vagal engagement and that sense of safety in each of these stages of action. So interesting. Because um, I think I read also that, that, you know, that when they do brain scans at the reward centers of the brain, around food are maladaptive in, um, in individuals with eating disorders as well. So I'm sure that probably fits into that, well, probably all the categories in terms of it's not rewarding to go out shopping, you know, because obviously we can have a lot of those sensory strategies, but when it actually comes to sitting and eating, if that's not rewarding on top of, you know, obviously if you've got a lot of gastrointestinal digestive difficulties, well, then that sort of layers on top of how do I actually, you know, find this whole experience right. yeah rewarding so as you say it yeah. is so so multi multi multi-layered it's it's a lot of layers yeah yeah so you talk a lot about um so my background is i'm actually an occupational therapist and in my oh. earlier career I was primarily a pediatric ot and and trained in center integration um yeah, i'm certified in center integration therapy so very much work from that that model so uh, when I first was introduced to you know, Pat Ogden's work, I was like, oh, my gosh, this is like this is all occupational therapy, sensory integration work, but now we've just expanded it to a whole mental health arena, which is just so cool. <laughs> but, um, yeah, a lot of those strategies yeah. were strategies that, you know, as a SIOT, that, that we implemented yeah. to help children regulate and get a bit more aware of their bodies. But expanded to have that more psychotherapy component is um, makes so much sense but so where so where in that sort of you know integrating um sort of that so you know Pat Ogden's work and then and then now you speak the polyvagal language so how did you sort of weave or start to reframe or just merge polyvagal theory into your sort of working model of, mm -hmm. of eating disorders <laughs> Yeah. So I think um, the one other thread that helped with that weaving is the work of Bonnie Brainbridge-Cohen, who was an occupational therapist, and she designed or she developed something called um, body-mind centering. And it's through her language of the developmental movement cycle or the relational cycle. That was a real thread, um, wove together the action cycle, the body, and attachment and safety. And where polyvagal theory comes in is that it is yet another language that tells us kind of what many of us have always known, which is 
relationships matter and our sense of safety matters that as particularly as mammals when it comes to food nourishment eating if if we don't have a safe attuned other we're dead right we will not eat as a mammal we are completely helpless when we are born we are dependent on relationship right and the ability to and so the wiring the fact what what polyvagal theory does so beautifully is it helps us understand that the neurology that the the same nerves that govern digestion <laughs> that system is the one that helps us know if we're in a safe relationship with what's outside of us that our inside and our outside are really connected through this ability to identify and then connect with safety it's the same nervous system and that's what i think polyvagal theory does so beautifully that this these are not parallel processes it's not like well you you have your relationship with food and then you have your relationship with people Mm-mm. it's the same thing it's it's all the same and so it follows the same rules and that if we don't have the neurology that can pick up cues of safety then it doesn't matter how much danger is or isn't present and so this is one of the things i think is so important for and 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 i think steve porter just does a beautiful job talking about this is that safety safety isn't the absence of danger right there's a big difference between feeling being protected and being safe and a lot of times people use the word safe for both of those situations but safe means that i'm separated from danger i mean protected means i'm separated from danger safe means i'm connected with something that's resonant nourishing attuned supportive and that's what polyvagal theory helps us understand on a physiological level is that we have this system whose sole function is to say can i connect with this safely do i need to disconnect from that to that I'm so, question yeah no i'm so glad that you sort of unravel that a little bit more. I can remember when um, I first sort of heard that concept, it sort of took me a little bit to kind of like really, really put all that together. And it makes so sense when you think about, you know, you know, children who are in protective, you know, services when they're being removed from danger, like a predator, but yet they're putting into an environment that is supposedly safe, but there is no one there showing them any connection they might be giving them food and clothes and shelter but there's no felt sense of safety through 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 connection so they still are their nervous 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 system is still in this heightened threat protective state because they don't have connection with it with another and um so yes now you said that beautifully i'm glad that you um it's an important piece It's interesting that we're talking about connection cuz right now our connection is I know our connection just kind of just, <laughs> that's um the universe talking isn't it yeah, yeah hopefully yeah. we're doing okay 
So if somebody comes to you now with an eating disorder, what is like their journey, um, mm -hmm. you know, through your kind of framework? Sure, sure. So, um, so I'm not, I'm no longer working in a treatment program. So I just want to say that, although I did work, I have worked with some people who are working in that setting and did design a program at one point for one. Um, so I think the first thing is there's, there's a combination of, of things that we're doing. One is offering a new framework for how to think about what's going on. And um, one of the things that I have found is when we start to help people understand one, the importance of their, of their physiology, right? And that if they aren't, if their physiology isn't feeling safe and settled, then eating is going to be really, really difficult, right? And that there are all of these things that can make that difficult that have nothing to do with you're not thinking the right thing or not trying hard enough, you know, it reduces the shame for one thing. And that's, that's huge, right? When we say, look, we aren't here to take something away from you, but to understand what's going on, that takes away a level of shame. One of the biggest- I'm just gonna interrupt you for a moment. Yeah. And then, because biologically it just makes so much sense when you think about survival. If you're not feeling safe, then your whole physiology is not set up to sit and eat because you're in that Absolutely. safe- Absolutely. <laughs> you know, nothing about it makes sense. That why right. would you- even have any inkling to even desire to want to eat when your biology is set up to, I'm in kind of survival mode right now. Right, you know? right. And one of the things that is un unfortunately um, happens a lot is that because this, this can be a very lethal, you know, it can be a, a lethal situation for people and it, people are understandably frightened. Everyone around them is frightened. <laughs> What they don't recognize is often they were frightened before the eating disorder developed as well. It's just that, you know, but the field itself is very fear-based. And so there's, in some ways, there's this attempt to scare people out of eating disorders, like saying, you know, don't you see how serious this is? This could kill you. You know, there's this urgency of you have to stop doing that and start doing this. You cannot scare someone out of being afraid. It, it just, it doesn't work. And we have to start listening to, oh, okay, if your body doesn't support this complex behavior of eating, which goes from, you know, identifying, preparing, selecting, ingesting, eliminating, completing, metabolizing, all of these things, it's so complicated. If you don't have bottom-up support for it, right, then you're going to have to basically just dissociate in order to get the food in. But we're going to ask you to dissociate in a sort of socially acceptable way. Use, you know, right? It just, it just doesn't work. So the first thing we do is we say, rather than be afraid of this eating disorder, let's get curious. And we can only be curious if as a provider ourselves, our system is, is regulated. So part of what we're starting with is trying to provide as much co-regulation as possible in the therapeutic relationship and then helping people to identify where are their sources for co-regulation. 
right? Um, but we're also, and so by doing that, we're, we're looking at the sensory systems. Like, how do you, how do you relate to the world? What do you draw to? What, what do you have, you know, super sensitivities to, or you have low registry of? What movements are, because are, it's a sensory motor system, what movements are regulating or dysregulating? What sensory input do you seek? You seek proprioceptive input, right? So are you somebody, oh, I'm just shaking the camera as I'm demonstrating. <laughs> bounces, bounces your, your feet or, you know, tends to fidget or tap. Do you move around a lot? Because you're trying to induce um, vestibular input, right? So sometimes these behaviors that are seen as disordered eating um, or eating disorder behaviors of these, this like compulsive movement has to do with the fact that the, they're seeking some kind of regulatory stimulus, but, they, but, but it's not really targeted in, and, and, and um, tailored enough to be like a, a real, what do they call it? A therapeutic dosage, right? Of it, we've got it. I mean, you know, this as an occupational therapist, and I'm, I'm sure I'm speaking your language here, right? Yeah. So we're we, so so we start to look at, you know, when is the what are the behaviors? When do those impulses to, to show up? Where in the in, in the action cycle? And we start to give people another way of looking at it, and they start to go. Oh, that makes sense. That makes sense. And as they do that, when they aren't trying to squeeze a felt sense experience into a cognition that doesn't really match up, because it's incongruency that really irritates the nervous system. When they get a congruent um, cognition that goes with their sensory motor experience, they go, okay. And then change and treatment isn't as scary because it's not about, you're going to take away something. One of the things we talk about is that recovery is an additive process. We're not about taking anything away. I had, I was working with somebody who purged and there was a lot of hesitancy. She purged by vomiting. There was a hesitancy. Um, actually, number of people I work with with this where they they were afraid I was going to tell them they had to stop purging and I said well I I don't want you to lo lose the inability to throw up because if part of my language I you know if someone is is feeding you shit I want you to throw it up like I don't want you to just take it because someone's giving it to you you need to be able to have that and you need to be able to recognize when actually what is being offered is nourishing and it's okay for me to be nourished. That's been missing. So how do we do that is sort of what you're saying. So first it's like some of it is psychoed, some of it is giving, giving a, inviting a new cognition and seeing what's lands. Then it is, experimenting with what can we add to the system that builds capacity for regulation? What's been missing? And sometimes 
We do a lot. I mean, you can see my office here. We've got, I've got a lot of sensory tools. I actually, right now I'm using a weighted lap pad on my own legs, you know? And, and so that's part of it is helping them. We work with aromatherapy, you know, anything that they can start to notice, oh, wait, my, something is different when I'm in relationship with this, which builds respect and trust for the physiology. Right, so there's we're starting to build a more um, collaborative relationship with the self and the body, instead of it being this adversarial relationship. And one of the things that we talk about is um, we sort of these four principles. One of which is the body is a resource in recovery. It's not an obstacle to overcome. It's not the last thing we deal with. You know, your your body image. It's the it's right there at the beginning is shifting your relationship with your body because it's a resource and therefore we have to resource the body. But sometimes we have to nourish the body through sensory input before it can take on this very complex task of getting nourishment from food. We are nourished through energy that comes in so many different ways through sound through touch through smell through light through love right through through gravity and sometimes we have to nourish the system before it can then go through this incredibly difficult process of 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 differentiating interceptive signals, you know, the motor that is responses that are required for selecting and preparing food, masticating, swallowing, digesting, metabolizing, eliminating, stopping. In order for someone to actually complete a task and rest, which we know is necessary for effective digestion, there has to be someplace safe for them to rest. They have to know that there are moments when they don't have to be doing something. That their, their, their acceptance and approval from others, their belonging in the world is not based on their productivity. It, that sometimes it's okay to just be. And if we aren't nourishing their, their physiology, their psychology, their, their body, soul, and spirit with that relationship that says, yeah, you're welcome to just be here. You don't have to do anything. You belong. If there's nothing that's nourishing that, then that completion phase of action, that rest and digest part of the nervous system never gets to engage and would just go right into, and, and if that's not there, it's very hard to get real clear signals of what you want to do next. Most of the time we just bounce from, you know, doing to doing, to doing, to doing, to collapse, do, 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 do collapse. Mm -hmm. so. so, and so with this, you know, this, this kind of different approach, more sort of body orientated attachment um, approach, what have you noticed with people 
tend to mm-hmm. just sort of start to have a different relationship with food then? I mean, right. Well, one of the first things they do is they, they, they go, oh, wait, this eating disorder, this isn't about food, is it? And we go, no, this is not about food. <laughs> this is not about food. Mm-hmm. You know, it's about relationship. Mm-hmm. It's about my, the inside and the outside, my inside world and my outside world, how they're organized, you know, how much safety exists inside, how much sa- inside, how much safety exists outside. Um, and how do they, they relate? So that's one of the first things. Um, and then um, I think what happens is, I mean, it, 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 it's hard to, to say across the board because people are coming from so many different places. And there's so many different things that bring somebody to this moment of not being able to have a, an embodied relationship with, with safety and with food. Um, but a lot of times when we're working with these different ways of building capacity, what people start to recognize is that there's, their eating disorder symptoms and urges decrease, right? And it's just that all of a sudden something is easy when they, it, it wasn't before. I, just was working with a, a, a client who was went to a restaurant and said, you know, I was anticipating it being really hard to, to select from a menu, but I knew what I wanted. And I just thought, that's it. I want that. And it wasn't that we rehearsed or we practiced strategies or anything like that. What we were working on was much more on a developmental movement how do you how do you find your legs right and and be able to integrate through your whole core and breathe and then reach forward you know how do you reach forward from a supportive place it's like oh wait I can just do oh it's right there it's easy I got it that's all I need to do Mm -hmm. I mean it makes you know, so much sense to me when you're sort of talking about working from this sort of perspective and, and shifting shifting the, the, the thinking around keeping food diaries and, as you say, taking away the fear um, around, um, around eating. Um, so it would be amazing if there was research that was being developed because I know the um, you know, eating disorders, the, the outcomes are, you know, people relapse, that, you know, that there's not good morbidity, morbidity rates are quite high with um, quite high. diagnosis yeah. of eating disorders can compare, what I was reading, compared to many of the other mental health um, diagnoses, that eating disorders has the highest morbidity rate. So um, it sounds like you're getting this kind of approach, you know, a more polyvagal embodied approach out there so does your institute um we'll talk about your training uh, as well but does your institute is that part of that is doing research as well we do not do research we have had conversations with people um but we haven't had um any any research done yet Uh, one of the challenges is that um you know research 
requires sort of this very singular, yes, very controlled, <laughs> you know, study. And and this particular because this is so comprehensive and so so broad. There's research, there's actually lots of research on all of the elements of this. There's research on mindful movement and regulation. There's research on, there's research on the connection between, um, you know, prenatal and birth trauma and predispositions, you know, or eating disorders later. There's, there's research on um, sensory processing and what they call ARFID which is um, avoidant uh, and restrictive feeding feeding and intake disorder, which is very much what we would look at as anorexia, anorexic behaviors, those restrictive behaviors, but it doesn't have the the sort of egocentric body image distortions. You know, it's not that people don't want to eat, it's that they don't have any desire to eat there, there are other things that that impede them and that has there there's research on connecting that with with sensory processing disorder um so i mean there's like elements all of these different elements in it but we've just woven a lot of that together right 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 which is often you know we're complex beings so we need to have a multi sort of faceted approach and i certainly respect that every everyone who walks through the door is such a complex presentation that programs need to be tweaked to to accommodate to accommodate mm-hmm. that pathway yeah. to yeah. wellness is yeah. certainly get that so yeah. i know research is is challenging um mm-hmm. So then, so right now, you're, mm-hmm. you have the Embodied Recovery Institute and provide training. Mm-hmm. Uh, so just, yeah, so tell practitioners, so I'm sure practitioners listening will be finding this really interesting yeah. and they've probably done bits and pieces of work and yeah, having something that actually, like a training that actually brings all those pieces together. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. So what, we're, what we have is um, we have it. Um, sort of this three-tiered training program. The first tier is a, an introduction to all of these maps, the polyvagal theory, window of tolerance, action cycle barriers, developmental, relational cycle of movement, all of these things, that sensory processing, that we, we kind of, um, we've introduced these maps and how they're woven together, right? And with that, we're starting to build this language. It, what we what we're looking for is this this sort of this central hub of language that multi the multidisciplinary team members can can share because how a yoga therapist is going to work with an insight barrier is going to be different than the family therapist but we want to be able to say yeah we're both working on this what is it to come expand into relationship with something the yoga therapist may be doing it through you know a plank and coming into the floor whereas the family therapist might be saying well what is it for you to come forward and you know tell your your parent this thing right so but it's both how do we come forward and get clarity um so 
so that's our tier one. And we're developing also just a, some basic skills for working with the body, of course, in that. And that is we have an online and an in-person version of our introduction. Then our tier two is takes different aspects, different maps, and we go and do deeper dives. So we have a moving through the barriers, through the action cycle barriers training. We have one that's on sensory processing and autism. We have one that's on primitive reflexes and early cellular patterning, embryological patterning. And then Paula, who we've mentioned, is doing um, an experiential on using the safe and sound protocol specifically with eating disorders using this model. Um, and that really fits into the, like, this is a great way to, to start to nourish the, the system. We have to nourish that nervous system through the use of sound mm. um, and vibration. And then after that, there's a, an, a tier three, which is an advanced skills for, for providers and then uh, two different group protocols on, on body image and, um, and also just a, a group for the embodied recovery for, for clients. For, so it's, it's a training on how to facilitate those groups. So we've got a bunch of training. Some of them are still in development. Um, so that's what we do. Very cool. And I just want to clarify too, because we've been primarily talking about eating disorders, but your training at the Institute is, for, is a mental health orientated. So it's not just like practitioners come in because I want to work with eating disorders. So this is a, the, uh, an approach, an embodied approach for mm-hmm. working in a mental health arena yeah yeah um, I think that I think that that's fair I, it, we do it is called embodied recovery for eating disorders however eating disorders like we said it's not about the food it's about mm-hmm. relationship many of the people who've taken the class their classes and it is designed for multidisciplinary teams so we have dietitians, we have therapists, we have art therapists, we have OTs take it. Um, we've had some yoga providers take it. it. So we have a lot of different perspectives in the trainings. Um, and then um, there are people who say, you know, I work mostly with addiction. This fits for that too, doesn't it? It's like, yeah, it does. This fits for, because it's trauma related. We are not training people how to be somatically oriented trauma therapists. But what we're saying is this is where this fits relative to trauma, particularly because we're working with the attachment system a lot. It's like, how do we build attachment, which is necessary to metabolize traumatic events to fully metabolize them so um yeah so there are a lot of different applications Mm -hmm. very cool and so we'll put links to um to the institute in the show notes um and then so if anyone wants to get in contact with you directly what's the best way for them to do that um they can do it through the through the institute or Mm -hmm. through um my my email which is rachel at embodiedrecovery.org mm-hmm. yeah so they can do it either way yeah excellent through the website look at that yeah yeah well i just want to thank you so much for your time and sharing your knowledge and i i learned um a lot as well and i think i love what you've done of of, of linking these these approaches and i think um 
I would personally be interested to, to learn that approach. I think. I, I, you would um, be most welcome. I, um, oh, I've geez. gone down the, um, yeah, I've gone down the technology side of, of, of in my career a lot. I do a lot of biofeedback or I did my, my board certification in neurofeedback and um, and obviously still as an OT have a very sensory motor um, approach yeah. Um, yeah. and use use obviously Sofitel protocol and the focus system and, and exactly like what you've done is have a very eclectic, you know, sort of, yeah. okay, problem solving, how am I going to merge these technologies with, with body mm-hmm. support? body sort of therapy so i love integrated um, approaches because we are complex to have we are Mm. and and i hope that that you know even if if people just take the introduction Mm. as a way of understanding why we need to include these Mm. other people in the team when we start to understand what is the importance of these other modalities these other practices you know and be able to to say okay this person they they need to work with with you know maybe an OT maybe this person needs to to do tai chi versus this person maybe they really need to take up kickboxing you know but but like we need to like feed the body in different ways and and no one person needs to can do that and you know exactly. so even the traditional providers if it gives them an understanding of why it's important to include the body in a more comprehensive way, I feel like that's a, that's that's huge. Mm-hmm. Which just jumps to mind. I was actually doing a, a mentorship meeting last night, and we were and we we're talking about networking with other professionals in the area. But in particular, um, if network practitioner who has a more sort of biomedical approach, where we're really healing the gut that, um, you know, because we know so much with individuals who have mental health challenges and we know from a whole polyvagal perspective that there's a lot of digestive difficulties and when we get gut dysbiosis, the whole gut-brain access becomes compromised. And so is that something that you kind of touch on a little bit in your training? And I, 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 I would say we touch on it. Again, we, you know, I, that is not my area of expertise. I think hopefully what we're saying is um, we have to be open to recognizing, yeah, th- like that's a place. Like if we don't, if we don't work with the, with, you know, the, the, the microbiome, mm-hmm. right. And, and help that or s- sort of um, working with the nervous system in multiple ways to bring regulation and get that ready, then, I mean, we're just asking people to swim upstream and, and that's just not fair. It's just not fair. We need to be able to address all of those things. And, and, and particularly for people who maybe have had pervasive eating disorders where their microbiome or they've had lots of medication, right? Medical trauma that has thrown off their gut and that was never really healed you know, like, of, of course, there's going to be an aversion, right? Like, exactly. of course, there. And if there's one other thing that I could just add, I think that does speak to polyvagal theory, um, is that I think what our, what our training emphasizes is that the regulation of the provider is essential, that we cannot ask our clients to be doing something that we are not 
willing to be engaged in the process of doing. We don't have to have it all together, you know, all the time. But this whole place of, of like kind of from my head to you, you, you over here, you, you do this deep breathing thing and get more regulation. If I'm not willing to do that, if I'm not willing to go on the embodiment journey, they're going to know that. And they're going to be like, wait a minute, I'm alone doing this thing. Forget it. You're just sitting there judging whether I've, I've done it enough or not. No, we have to be willing. We have to be willing to, to go on that journey and, and show up as a regulated other. And um, that, that, that is our first intervention. That is our, you know, sort of the first, the last and everything in between. If we aren't doing that, then, then again, we're asking our, our clients to swim upstream. Perfect. Um, did I, did I, did I? <laughs> <laughs> Definitely. Well, Rachel, thank you so much. I just love it. And um, thank, you. thank you so much thank for, you your for your time. time. And, um, yeah, I look forward to, yeah, hopefully we can speak again in, in, uh, in the future. Oh, I'd love that. Thank you so much for the invitation and sharing your time with me. I really yeah. appreciate it. I hope you all enjoyed my conversation with Rachel. I include in the show notes a brief summary of some of the key points or ideas that we discussed. I'll also have in the show notes a, a link to the Embodied Recovery Institute. If you like this episode or any other episode, please share it with a friend or colleague. I look forward to sharing more information in the future. All the best, Joanne. If you'd like to learn more about the Safe and Sound Protocol in Australia and New Zealand, please contact Integrated Listening Australia. The website is integratedlistening.com. And for the rest of the world, please contact Unite Integrated Listening at integratedlistening.com. I want to do that again. <clears throat> if you'd like to learn more about the Safe and Sound Protocol, it <clears throat> if you'd like to learn more about the Safe and Sound Protocol in Australia and New Zealand, please contact Integrated Listening Australia. The website is integratedlistening.com.au and for the rest of the world, please contact Unite Integrated Listening at integratedlistening.com. I'm just going to do one last one. <clears throat> if you'd like to learn more about the Safe and Sound Protocol in Australia and New Zealand, please contact Integrated Listening Australia the website is integratedlistening.com.au and for the rest of the world, please contact Unite Integrated Listening at integratedlistening.com.